You're listening to the Bowman of the Yard podcast. Exhibit K. Hello, hello, hello. Hello, hello, hello. Listen, it's November the 1st. The clocks have gone back in the UK. Uh, British summertime is over. The nights are drawing in. The leaves are falling off the trees. It's the time of year where people share those dreadful memes of people working at English heritage, moving the stones around at Stonehenge because we put the clocks back. It's getting cold. It's getting foggy, potentially. You're all very welcome. I'm Richard James. And I'm Peter Crouch. And uh, we're here for the next uh, half hour or so to talk about all things Bowman. We've got some big news this week, of course, because since we last spoke, there's a new novel has been released in the Bowman of the Yard series. Before we go any further, we ought to really talk about what's coming up. Could you just um, walk over and just throw open that sash window over there by the fireplace there? Uh, That's it. Yep. Go on, then. That's it. Now, if you lean out, you'll see that the 9.33 from Paddington is just about to whistle past. Now, don't be too afraid, but just lean out and put your hand out because someone's going to hand you a piece of paper. Here he comes. Oh, 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 yeah, I've got it. All right. Oh, okay, here we go. Close the window. Hi, what a noise. All right. Now, what do you have there? Well, it's saying that we've got all the latest news coming up. We've got a post bag full of letters to the yard. Uh, this month we have Maggie Davis as our author locked away in the cells at Bow Street. And very exciting, stay tuned for the first part of the second short story from Bowman's casebook, The Hackney Poisoning. Yes, that's true, with the Smithfield murder having come to an end, and last month's little peek at the first chapter of The Phantom in the Fog, the fourth Bowman novel, I thought it was time to start on the next short story from Bowman's casebook. So, yes, do hang on uh, for when the music stops at the end of the podcast for part one of The Hackney Poisoning. Now, Peter, shall we head straight to the news? Let's head there. Extra, extra, read all about it! Well, it's been a very exciting month if you're a fan of Bowman of the Yard because the fourth novel in the series is out. The Phantom in the Fog, it's only been out for a few days as we record this, but already I'm very pleased and relieved to see that it's uh, picking up five-star ratings on Amazon and Goodreads. Now, have you heard of Goodreads, Peter? I haven't. What is Goodreads, Richard? Well, it's uh, I think it's owned by Amazon. It's an American website, uh, but you can log in from anywhere around the world. It allows people to search its database of books and quotes and reviews, and you can sign up. You can create your own groups of book suggestions, surveys, polls, blogs and discussions, and you can review your favourite books there. So if you do have a Goodreads account or if you fancy signing up, why not write a review for one of my books? The Head in the Ice, The Devil in the Dock, The Body in the Trees, and now The Phantom in the Fog. Reviews are so important for emerging authors like me because, of course, they let other readers know just what you think of the book and it might tempt them to buy it. But also, as the reviews stack up, it enables your publisher to then apply for various uh, featured deals and advertisements on various websites, uh, which obviously pushes it out to an even greater audience, thus, hopefully, getting more readers. So do leave a review, not just of my books, but any book you read, and let everyone else know what you think. The second piece of news for this month is that the latest short story, The Stepney Blackmailing, is coming in the next few days. Wow, exciting. Yes, but do be careful because it picks up from where the Phantom in the Fog leaves off. And I have to warn you, it will contain spoilers from the very first page. Oh, spoiler alert. Yes. Now, I was almost tempted to read the first few... uh, 
uh, pages or paragraphs from this at the end of this uh, podcast. But I thought, well, I'd better not because I can understand there might be a few people who have yet to read The Phantom in the Fog. And it, there are certain ramifications that are dealt with in the next short story from the very first few lines. So be very careful. Now, I just thought that you might want a little bit of blurb so you know what the story's about. Fancy hearing that? Absolutely. At a funeral in Stepney, Inspector Bowman is approached by Isabella Stallard, the wife of a local teacher. She reveals her husband is subject to blackmail from persons unknown. Unless a substantial sum is paid, revelations concerning his private life will be made public. As Bowman delves deeper, he discovers a family history littered with secrets. Finally, when Archibald Stallard is attacked and threatened with death, the thugs who accost him leave a vital clue to their identity. The Stepney Blackmailing coming in the next few days. And that means, of course, that in this series of uh, Bowman books, we have just one short story left that will be with you in December. I think uh, it's fair to say it will have a Christmas theme, but that will be the very end mm. of the Bowman of the Yard series for now, for this sequence of books. Letters to the Yard. Right, we've got a letter from Rob Doyle. He says, just wanted to say I'm really looking forward to book four in the Bowman series. I have a question which I'm sure the answer will be no, but it doesn't hurt to ask. I don't owe him money, do I? Uh, not sure about that. I've collected both versions of the books, and from a completist point, is there any chance of a special edition of book four with a cover by Gareth Richards? I loved his covers. The Body in the Trees is my favourite. It was so striking. Also, I see you have a new short story, What Dreams May Come. You kept that quiet. Well, still waiting for the title of book four. I'll just have to be patient, I suppose. Keep safe, Rob. <laughs> well, thank you for your patience, Rob. You will now know, of course, it's the Phantom in the Fog. Yeah, What Dreams May Come is a little ghost uh, short story that I wrote. Um, I always fancied writing a sort of M.R. James spooky story for Halloween. Um, so you can pick that up on Amazon, just 99p. Uh, find me on Amazon.co.uk and uh, you can download and read What Dreams May Come and I hope you enjoy it. As to uh, the covers, yeah, the previous covers when I was self-publishing the Bowman books from uh, Gareth Richards were lovely, weren't they? Oh, yeah. Uh, but of course, Rob, they cost me. <laughs> Obviously, I had to pay Gareth for his services uh, and that takes a little time to recoup when you're only a sort of a small, small author. Uh, so I have to say the chances of getting uh, one of his covers for the new book are probably slim to zero. Uh, sorry about that, but who knows, maybe one day in the fullness of time. Now, I have one here from Peter Lippmann who says, uh, thank you, Richard, for continuing to write such imaginative, beautiful stories. Well, thank you, Peter. He says, I shall be ordering the Phantom in the Fog ASAP. Keep safe and healthy. Best as always, Peter. And I have also here Roger Smith who says, I'm still waiting for the paperback. All right, Roger, it'll be out soon enough. Uh, he says, my sister-in-law, Michelle, says she is loving it. So that's a good sign. And she said I would enjoy it. Anyway, he says, I've sent for my map so I can follow proceedings like Bowman. Ah. Ah. That's interesting. Now, Roger, Bowman's map, even though he isn't in his office for the majority of The Phantom in the Fog, still looms quite large in the story in a way that you will discover when you read the book. Intriguing. And funnily enough, Peter, I remember you suggested that very idea to me. Did I? Probably about a couple of years ago when I was sort of embarking on the series, and I already knew by then that in book four, Bowman would end up in a certain place... Ah. Uh, and would have to solve a crime from that certain place. And you uh, gave me the idea of um, the map sort of being integral to his solving of the case. 
Yeah, actually, I remember that now. And I remember you talking about um, about where Bowman would be, mm-hmm. and thinking, okay, he needs he needs his office around him. He's going to be solving yes. the crime. So what does yes. he need? And, and the map for me always features as a character almost. The, you know, London, all of the the venues that he goes to mm. is a character that supports the story. And uh, yeah, yeah. So I think it's it's an important feature. Yeah, it's quite. <laughs> I mean, I, I'm not claiming any originality here because I think Inspector Morse uh, investigated a case from his hospital bed. Uh, and there's also a book called uh, The Daughter of Time by Josephine Tay, which uh, features um, a, a policeman or detective who is in hospital. And to while away the time, he uh, decides to investigate the murder or deaths of the princes in the tower by uh, Richard III. Uh, really interesting book. So I can't claim any originality. Well, we also heard from Andrew Curry. Uh, Mm -hmm. He says, about halfway through The Phantom in the Fog and enjoying it very much. It's good to see Graves in action on his own, determined to do the right thing despite the pressure on him to do otherwise. Mm -hmm. In just a few paragraphs, Inspector Simeon Granger was introduced as a very interesting, likeable character. Perhaps we'll see more of him in the future? Finding the Bowman series has been one of my few positives since coronavirus started, and it will be a shame not to have it to look forward to as we move into a new, hopefully better year but quite understand the reasons for the break. I do have an interest in Roman history, so you could already have me hooked for the new books that you have planned. What are your plans for the podcast during the hiatus, and uh, where do you think Bowman will return? Mm, He's used the word hiatus there, Peter, which uh, pleases me enormously. Lovely, lovely use of hiatus. (laughs) Uh, A few points there. Yes, so Inspector Simeon Granger is a character. He's, uh, He's Sergeant Bowman's superior because uh, it's not giving too much away to say that during the events of The Phantom in the Fog, we do flash back 10 years to see a younger Bowman uh, investigating a series of crimes with Inspector Simeon Granger. Will we see more of him in the future? Well, that's a strange thing, Andrew, because we'll be seeing more of him in the past. In the fullness of time, I'll be writing a whole series, a new series of Bowman books set in 1882, 10 years previous to this current series. And yes, Inspector Simeon Granger will be featuring very much so. You mentioned there, Andrew, also the Roman uh, series of books that I have planned. If you're subscribing to my uh, newsletter, just go to bowmanoftheyard.co.uk and subscribe there, then you will know that next year we'll see uh, the release of a couple of books featuring uh, a rather different detective. Uh, You might call him an Iron Age detective. I've always been fascinated by the idea of uh, the Roman invasion of Britain and what that felt like. What was the first point when the Romans came ashore How did they go about settling in the country? What did the indigenous population think of them? How much resistance did they put up? Was there any sort of collaboration? Uh, And that's an interesting point there, and that's sort of the area that I'm going to be uh, investigating, as it were, with a particular character who is one of the indigenous Celts when the Romans invade, but he sees which way the wind is blowing. So he sort of inveigles his way into the nearest Roman villa, and he uh, puts himself in the service of the local Roman general, as he does that, of course, there is a series of murders, and uh, he investigates. Uh, so that's the basic outline of the new series. There'll be more on that when I've written it. Wow. Presumably that's going to take an awful lot of research and, and possibly harder to research the kind of the themes and the, the sort of landscape of that time. Absolutely. Right down to the minutiae. I've got to look into, you know, what do these people eat? What did their day consist of? What were their religious beliefs? What might they have felt yeah. at this, uh, you know, invasion and occupation by uh, the Roman forces? Um, so, yes, lots of research to do there. But hopefully this time next year, there'll be at least one and maybe two books out featuring uh, this brand new unlikely detective. Watch this space.
Rod Henderson got in touch to say, I hope that one day there is a huge bumper omnibus edition with all the stories in. The Bowman Casebook Volume 1. Yeah, that's a nice idea, isn't it? Imagine getting all the novels and all the short stories in one collected volume. Uh, could well happen. Yeah. Um, I see that Sharp Books are already uh, collecting the novels into a box set, uh, an e-book box set, called Seasons in Hell. I should imagine the fourth book will be added to that in due course. And perhaps in the fullness of time, maybe the short stories will be slotted in too. But of course, I will let you know. And Rebecca Andrews said, I can't wait for the Stepney blackmailing. I really enjoyed these stories. I'll have to go back and read them all again while I wait. Very good. Yes, do. Start with the Smithfield murder. And why not make your way through all the short stories? How do you get hold of them? Well, you go to bowmanoftheyard.co.uk, subscribe to my newsletter. And the first three or four emails you get from me over the course of a couple of weeks uh, will include some links to get all the short stories from Bowman's Casebook. Uh, and there's about to be a seventh release for free. That's all for now. What a bulging postbag it was. Uh, do keep them coming in to podcast at bowmanoftheyard.co.uk or of course you can visit our Facebook page, give it a like and join in the conversations there. That's enough from our listeners, Peter. Shall we have a word from our sponsors? Oh yes, please. In a class by itself, the Rectorotor, the latest and most efficient invention for the quick relief of piles, constipation and prostate trouble. The Rectorotor is the only device that reaches the vital spot effectively. This picture tells its own story. Note especially those little vent holes in the nozzle through which the unguent inserted in the chamber below may be forced out by turning this knurled cap. No other appliance in the world is so constructed, none other able to reach the vital spot to such good purpose. The Rectorotor obtains its amazingly quick results without the use of medicine, electricity, operations or massage by an attendant. Indoor toilet, placed in your home, sanitary and odourless on 10 days free trial. No money down, no deposit, no more outside backyard inconveniences, no chambers to empty, no sewer or cesspool. Chemical process dissolves human waste in water, no trouble, kills disease germs, prevents flies, filth and bad odours of outhouse. A real necessity for old, young or invalid, preserves health. Get your indoor toilet from Cornier Cabinet Co. Ritter and Co. respectfully tell the ladies, get plump with Professor Williams' famed Fatten New Foods. Why suffer tortures with inferior mechanical devices that artificially fatten? Don't look like a poor unfortunate who, shorn of her artificial inflationary devices and pads, must, in the confines of her bedroom, through shame, try to cover her poor thin figure. These foods cure nerve and brain exhaustion. They make pale folks pink and thin folks plump, and weak folks well and despairing folks happy. They will make you young all your life. You know it is better to be a young old woman than an old young woman. Three genuine adverts there from the Victorian and Edwardian era. Uh, the Rectorotor certainly sounds interesting. Yes, reaches the parts that other Rectorotors don't reach. <laughs> Maybe we should give away one free with each podcast. <laughs> How interesting. We often remark, don't we, that so many of these adverts are about uh, well, particularly female physical appearance. Uh, but how interesting there's a product there to get women fatter. Yeah. Current trend is the exact opposite. It's crazy, isn't it? Anyway, uh, that's enough from our sponsors. I think it's about time that we headed down to the cells at Bow Street. Every month, we lock a guest author down there in the cells so they can make an account of themselves. But this month, Maggie Davies has done something rather different. She's locked one of her characters in the cells. Let's have a listen in. You're nicked. 
Somebody fetch my smelling salts. Quickly. I think I'm having an attack of the vapors. It's this foul place. What am I even doing here? It's that girl who should be in this stinking cell, not me. Hannah Hubert. Giving herself airs when she was nothing but a scheming servant. Earning her living emptying piss pots. What if my useless brother-in-law did father a bastard on her? Who cares? Look, I know the reprobate dabbled in things he shouldn't. But those children would probably have starved to death if he hadn't found a use for them, wouldn't they? Of course, if he and his slut of a wife had known the Hubert girl could read, they'd have been more careful. Never let her get her thieving hands on those incriminating letters. But she did, and everything stemmed from that. My poor husband had to get rid of William after that. Couldn't have him up before the magistrates like a common criminal. With the Puritan farmer George on the throne, we wouldn't have been able to show our faces at court. Though that creates a new problem, doesn't it? With his brother dead, no living sons of his own, and me past childbearing, it means the line will die out. What Marquis can allow that? Dear God, you don't think he's trying to get rid of me? Having me locked in here with the thieves and the rats? People die in these places, don't they? They're rife with jail fever. I must get out of here. Let me out, please. If you want to know more about Maggie Davies and her novel, The Servant, who better to tell us a little more than Maggie herself? Maggie was born in the northeast, but now lives in Royal Tunbridge Wells. She won the Historical Writers Association 2020 Unpublished Novel Award this spring with The Servant, a thriller about dark dealings in 18th century London. Find out about her and it on her website www.maggiedavisiswriting.com or follow her on Twitter at MaggieDavisWR1. Well, thank you very much, Maggie Davis. Do look for her award-winning novel, The Servant, on Amazon. Uh, and join us next month for another guest author in Cells at Bow Street. Right, well, now, this month, Richard, uh, as you know, I always like to have a bit of a ponder. Yes, I have noticed. I took the liberty of reading one of the more recent reviews for The Devil in the Dom. Ah. Now, Badder Jars wrote, Good story, London settings very atmospheric, glad I live now and not back then. Yes. And that set me thinking about some of the more unlikely facts about living in Victorian England. All right. Now, people would regularly fill a day with taxidermy, the practice of stuffing dead animals. And what would you do with all your small taxidermied friends? Well, create an anthropomorphic tableau, of course. Now, the stuffed animals were dressed in tiny human clothing and posed in dioramas recreating human activities. One of the most well-known artists in Victorian Britain was a taxidermist, Walter Potter, who created scenes of rabbit schoolboys, cigar-smoking squirrels, and kittens having a tea party. 
<laughs> right, okay. It's rather like that. Um, there is a Twitter account, I think, called Crap Taxidermy. I don't know if you've ever followed that. If you haven't, yeah. do have a look. There are some, perhaps if you're a bit too squeamish, maybe not a good thing to do. But there are some extraordinary pictures there of very badly posed stuffed animals. I think if Walter Potter was uh, alive now, he'd have an Instagram account, most certainly. Yes. Absolutely. Now, we've all seen parodies of racy Victorian photographs where a woman shows off a single ankle. Mm -hmm. Well, showing even a tiny bit of skin was taboo, and necessity is the mother of invention. Thus, the ever-industrial Victorians created modesty boards. Now, these boards were nailed or propped up close to the ground to ensure the women's ankles were not visible when they were seated. Interesting. I always thought that was something of a myth, the sort of Victorian prudery, but there were obviously enough examples of it around for that myth, you know, to take seed. Yeah, maybe maybe that was sort of things like this, the modesty board, the advertising, you know, that puritanical side of things was, was promoted, but we obviously know there was also a, a racy side as well. Indeed. Buttoned up as they were, the Victorians also believed that there was life on Mars. Uh, Giovanni Schiaparelli, an Italian astronomer, claimed he saw artificial waterways on Mars through his telescope. Apparently for Schiaparelli, these canals were evidence that extraterrestrial beings on the Red Planet had some form of technology and were attempting either travel or commerce. Now, these ideas were generally quite popular and taken seriously by the public. People would even leave money in their wills dedicated to strange scientific causes like making contact with extraterrestrial life. Yeah, that's interesting. That theory kind of uh, was held for quite a way into the 20th century as well. I was in a, a pub in uh, uh, Exmoor about three or four years ago and there was a, a row of uh, books on the shelf and one of them uh, was about scientific discoveries of the age. Uh, and I think the book was only probably from the 1920s or 1930s, a whole chapter on the uh, canals on Mars. Wow. I suppose then you go into the, what is it, the 60s and 70s with uh, Eric von Daniken and, and uh, yes. all those yes. kind of books. Chariots of the Gods, yes. Yeah, right. yeah. Now, Richard, mm -hmm. I know that you often think about Lady Gaga. <laughs> it is true, yes. Yeah, uh, it's been said, hasn't it? And uh, I know you often think about what inspired her. <laughs> right. Well, here's proof that beauty writers have been leading us down some interesting paths since at least the Industrial Revolution. Mm -hmm. If you read one 19th century beauty column, you might be trying to bind slices of raw beef to your face at night in order to prevent wrinkles and promote a youthful, radiant complexion. Ah, uh, interesting. Now that's where she got her meat dress from. Yeah, absolutely. Now, uh, again, we were talking about the advert with the, uh, the plumping of women. Uh, another, mm. another sort of area here that I was looking at, many women in Victorian England suffered from hysteria, which was really just a catch-all name for anything that bothered them. Feeling blue? Hysteria. Irritable? Hysteria. Anxious? Hysteria. How could you cure this horrible ailment? Well, with a pelvic finger massage, which would cause hysterical paroxysm. Right. And on that note, I shall leave that to your imagination. Time, please, gentlemen. Let's have all your glasses. I think probably it's just as well there that we've run out of time for this particular podcast, Peter. Yes, I think we didn't want to ponder too far on pelvic paroxysms. Thank you for your company once again. Do join us next month for Exhibit L, which I suppose will be our Christmas edition, won't it? Oh, it will. We'll have to put the decorations up. That's right. Uh, get in touch at podcast.bowmanoftheart.co.uk. Do leave a review if you're reading Phantom of the Fog and let us know what you think of it. Uh, and uh, all being well and everyone being safe, we'll see you again next month. Bye for now. Bye for now. The Hackney Poisoning, a short story from Bowman's casebook, 
by Richard James. Sir Kingdom Fanshawe stood at the gates to Hackney Union Workhouse, resting his great frame upon his ornate cane. Fashioned from wood said to have been brought from the Amazon basin, he fancied it gave him an air of mystery and profound wisdom. His great astrakhan coat brushed the road where he stood such that, within moments of stepping from his carriage, the hems were caked with dust and grime. A fancy waistcoat barely contained the great expanse of his stomach. The material was of a deep, luxurious red. His cravat was secured at his neck with a jewel in the form of a scarab beetle. Most remarkable of all, however, was his face. For one who had made his money through foreign investments, it seemed entirely appropriate that it resembled nothing less than a map. His veins were the rivulets and tributaries of a great river, his nose a promontory. His eyes were two deep, roomy lakes, his pockmarked skin the pitted terrain of a scarred desert. A pair of dark beetle brows crowned the whole, like two great and unruly forests. A thatch of dark hair was swept back from the tundra of his forehead and crowned with a tall silk top hat. All in all, Sir Kingdom liked to think, he cut quite the figure as he stood on Homerton High Street before the workhouse. It had been a rainy night, and the high walls reared from the filthy road towards grey, roiling clouds. Behind those walls, Sir Kingdom knew, there existed a world in opposition to his own. Where he knew luxury and comfort, those who lived in the dormitories that rose before him knew only poverty and hardship. Where he had the world at his feet, the walls before him contained world enough for those inside. Where he considered himself master of his own fate, those poor wretches were destined for one thing only, an early grave. The workhouse was home to some five hundred people, staff and inmates. It was a community of the poorest and most desperate in society. It provided security of sorts to those at the bottom of the heap. Those with nothing found themselves at its gates, to find that they still had nothing but had to work for it. A roof and strict discipline were all the workhouse had to offer. Men were put to work in the breaking yards or in the cobbler's workshops. Women toiled at the laundry or in the kitchens. It had often struck Sir Kingdom as a rum thing that the inmates' toil should be to provide for the inmates themselves. In his capacity as the prime benefactor, he had access to the register of inmates. He knew those walls contained amongst their number a good many cabinet-makers, bricklayers, glass-blowers and needlewomen. Surely they would be better put to work for some other, greater good. Principally, Sir Kingdom's good. He drew deep on his cigar as he considered the many thousands of pounds he had gifted to the workhouse. He saw now, as the smoke encircled his head, that it had all been wasted. He had seen no return in the last three years. In that time, conditions of the workhouse had deteriorated. A new, more lax regime had resulted in a breakdown of discipline. Fights amongst the inmates were commonplace, often resulting in injury or death. Respect for the staff had disappeared, and they were often the recipients of verbal or physical abuse. As a result, the workhouse had lost five of its ten staff and were having trouble recruiting their replacements. Now it only attracted those to its gates who were of a more belligerent personality. A black market in cigarettes and opium had flourished behind those walls, and brawls between rival factions were commonplace. 
Mealtimes were often abandoned as they descended into chaos and the factories and yards were brought to a standstill. Hackney's reputation had travelled far and wide. Those in Sir Kingdom's circle were beginning to question the wisdom of his investment in the workhouse. This was leading to a lack of confidence in his whole portfolio. One by one, his clients were deserting him. To put it simply, Hackney Union Workhouse was bad for his business. Sir Kingdom trod the stump of his cigar into the ground and made his way to the great iron gates that marked the entrance. The master of the workhouse, a dandy of a man in green frock coat and bejeweled waistcoat, was already at the gate with his keys, a sycophantic smile upon his face. A tidy, officious-looking moustache bristled on his top lip. It's a kingdom, Ferdinand Barrett leered as he bent at the lock. It is a pleasure to see you again. I trust you are well. He adjusted his silk cravat at his throat as he spoke. Sir Kingdom noted it did not match the colour of his waistcoat. The night harumphed as the gate swung open to admit him. I'm so sorry I'm late, Barrett continued. There was a little trouble in the breaking yard. Sir Kingdom nodded, curtly. He fancied he had heard the commotion over the wall as he had waited on the road, rest assured that matters have been brought to a satisfactory conclusion. Sir Kingdom noticed the master was rubbing a bruise on his jaw as he spoke. "'Very good, Barrett,' Sir Kingdom rumbled. "'I trust it will not delay dinner. I have many calls upon my time.' He pulled an ornate fobwatch from his waistcoat, tapped the dial, and tutted loudly. "'No, indeed,' breathed Barrett, as he led his companion across the yard to the master's quarters. "'The food will be ready to serve in just a few minutes, and the staff are already assembled.' Sir Kingdom rolled his eyes to the grey heavens above. These monthly dinners were nothing but a chore, and he would be glad to be shot of them. They had been instigated at the previous master's insistence, and, in truth, Sir Kingdom had enjoyed his company. He had thrilled to Sir Kingdom's tales of his travels and the subsequent investments that had brought him his wealth, the spice trade in India, the cotton fields of China, the vineyards of France. In short, he had felt flattered by the attention and happy to increase his largesse accordingly. It had been a prestige investment, given only so that Sir Kingdom's reputation might benefit. And so it did. He was praised for his philanthropy. He carried his reputation with him in his demeanour, his back never anything less than ramrod straight, his nose never held anything less than high in the air. Barrett led him through the rear door to his apartments. As Sir Kingdom stepped over the threshold, he fancied he heard a catcall from across the yard behind him. Turning, he saw several men leaning out of a high window in the building opposite, their hands outstretched to deliver the most obscene gestures. They broke into laughter as they saw Sir Kingdom notice them. "'All right, mate,' leered one through a mouthful of haphazard teeth. "'Come to help in the kitchens, have we?' Barrett shut the door an obsequious look upon his face. I can only apologise, Sir Kingdom, he fawned. Some of the men are a little, he searched for the word, excitable. The two men made their way up a wide wooden staircase into the master's parlour. There sat the staff awaiting dinner. A stained cotton cloth covered the dining table. The cutlery was of a tarnished steel that had seen better days, and the glass was far from cut crystal. Frankly, thought Sir Kingdom Fanshawe, as Barrett relieved him of his hat and coat, this was not what he was used to. As he squeezed into his usual carver chair at the head of the table, the fat knight looked around him. Three men and a woman blinked back. 
the workhouse matron, Florence Hapgood, looked like she'd barely eaten anything in her life. Dark rings encircled her eyes, and Sir Kingdom noticed she was losing her hair as she bobbed her head in greeting. Next to her sat Robert Coldman, the Labour superintendent. He raised his glass as he met Sir Kingdom's eyes, his mean lips breaking into something approaching a smile. Then came William Mooney, the ward superintendent. A fidgety young man with a lopsided face, he looked away as Sir Kingdom's gaze swept the table. Almost directly opposite sat Ambrose, the caretaker, an ancient scarecrow of a man. He sat bent at the table, his beady eyes and bony hands restless in anticipation of his meal. As Ferdinand Barrett took his place to his left-hand side, Sir Kingdom Fanshawe looked balefully around the table and concluded it was populated by the least interesting company he could possibly imagine. The meal was inadequate in both quality and quantity. A bland bird had been boiled a good half-hour longer than was necessary. The vegetables were hard and unforgiving, the sauce a thin brown soup. Even the wine could not lift Sir Kingdom's spirits. Dinner was taken in almost complete silence. As each course was brought to the table by the matron from the kitchen below, those around him raised their eyes to the night in hopeful expectation of a kind word or look concerning the food. None was forthcoming. Overpudding a steamed sponge of questionable heritage, Barrett finally found his voice. I'm sure, Sir Kingdom, he began through a mouthful of dried fruit, that you will be most impressed with the improvements to the privy. Sir Kingdom paused with his food halfway to his lip, his appetite suddenly diminished. We have now erected a wall to keep it from the gaze of the other inmates. William Mooney nodded thoughtfully. This was as a direct result of requests from some of the women, he added. We are often minded to remember that we are here to serve them. Sir Kingdom's brows darkened. He resented the remark. These people were not to be served. They were, if possible, to be profited from. To his left, Barrett was opening a box of cut cigars. He had learned that the easiest way to impress the knight was to offer him a cigar after a meal. In truth, Sir Kingdom had always found Barrett's choice of smoke rather inferior. The leaf was too dry, the tobacco too woody. Taking a cigar from the box, Sir Kingdom absently cut the end and held it to a candle on the table. Puffing it to life, he leaned back on his chair and cleaned his throat. <clears throat> Have you instigated the programme of employment I suggested when last we met? Barrett's blank look told him he had not. There is a body of able men here, Sir Kingdom continued through billows of smoke, who are capable of service to the outside world. Things may be mended, roads may be maintained, shoes may be fixed, and all for a price. His eyes gleamed. We do not feel, stuttered the master, that such things are within the purview of the workhouse. You are weak, sir. Sir Kingdom banged his fist upon the table. Weak! The matron jumped in surprise at the noise and held her hand to her mouth. I have seen my investments squandered on these ridiculous hair-brained schemes. Sir Kingdom was on his feet now. A wall to hide the privy indeed. He dabbed at his mouth with a soiled napkin. You forget, sir, that these people know nothing better. They are used to squatting in the street. He turned to the matron. With apologies, madam. Florence Hapgood did her best to give a demure nod. Sir Kingdom turned his attention back to the workhouse master. Why should my money be spent on a wall? 
The caretaker raised a bony finger. Uh, we used brick from the breaking guard, sir, he offered. I care nothing for the breaking guard. Sir Kingdom had walked from the table to the coat stand by the front door. I care nothing for the inmates. He was shrugging on his heavy coat as he seethed. And I care nothing for this workhouse. What is your meaning, sir? blustered Barrett from his seat. I mean to withdraw my benevolence, sir. There were audible gasps from around the table. This place is bringing me nothing but misery. Your ill repute has spread as surely as if it were one of the diseases in your infirmary. The matron's mouth hung open. My clients are deserting me, hearing of my association with this failing workhouse. Barrett was on his feet at once, his hands held wide. But, Sir Kingdom, without your money, he stammered, we will struggle to stay open. Seems to me you're struggling already. Sir Kingdom jammed his top hat on his head and bent to retrieve his cane. Will you go public with your decision? asked Coldman, agog. The news will destroy us. None knows but my wife, as she knows all my affairs. Tomorrow I shall inform the Board of Guardians. From then on, the world shall know. He swung round to face Barrett. I cannot continue to prop you up, Barrett, he thundered. You must find yourself another benefactor. With that, Sir Kingdom Fanshawe swept from the room, leaving a stunned audience in his wake. Ferdinand Barrett stood blinking at the table, his spoon still held in his hand. Mr. Coldman, he began slowly, I think preparations should be made. Preparations for what, sir? asked Robert Coldman as he stood in his place. Barrett swallowed as he looked around the table. Those seated next to him depended on the workhouse for their income. Without it, they too would be cast upon the streets. He could see from their faces that the truth was presenting itself to them. Without Sir Kingdom Fanshawe and his money, they didn't stand a chance. Barrett turned to Coldman, his lower lip quivering. Unemployment, he said simply, and he sunk back into his chair.